Welcome to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast. Come for the science, stay for the stories. For news, interviews, videos, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org. This week on the podcast, ripples in space-time have been detected a century after Einstein predicted them, launching a new era in astronomy. Then, in our second segment, researchers think they can avoid some naughty paradoxes at the edge of physics by replacing black holes with buzz balls. First, Gravitational Waves Detected at Last by Natalie Wolchover. Ripples in space-time caused by the violent mergers of black holes have been detected 100 years after these gravitational waves were predicted by Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity, and half a century after physicists set out to look for them. The landmark discovery was reported on February 11, 2016, by the Advanced Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or Advanced LIGO team confirming months of rumors that have surrounded the group's analysis of its first round of data. Astrophysicists say the detection of gravitational waves opens up a new window on the universe, revealing faraway events that can't be seen by optical telescopes, but whose faint tremors can be felt even heard across the cosmos. We have detected gravitational waves. We did it, announced David Reitze, executive director of the thousand-member team at a National Science Foundation press conference in Washington, D.C. Gravitational waves are perhaps the most elusive prediction of Einstein's theory, one that he and his contemporaries debated for decades. According to his theory, space and time form a stretchy fabric that bends under heavy objects, and to feel gravity is to fall along the fabric's curves. But can the space-time fabric ripple like the skin of a drum? Einstein flip-flopped, confused as to what his equations implied, but even steadfast believers assumed that in any case, gravitational waves would be too weak to observe. They cascade outward from certain cataclysmic events, alternately stretching and squeezing space-time as they go. But by the time the waves reach Earth from these remote sources, they typically stretch and squeeze each mile of space by a minuscule fraction of the width of an atomic nucleus. Perceiving the waves took patience and a delicate touch. Advanced LIGO bounced laser beams back and forth along the four-kilometer arms of two L-shaped detectors, one in Hanford, Washington, the other in Livingston, Louisiana looking for coincident expansions and contractions of their arms caused by gravitational waves as they passed. Using state-of-the-art stabilizers, vacuums, and thousands of sensors, the scientists measured changes in the arm's lengths as tiny as one-thousandth the width of a proton. This sensitivity would have been unimaginable a century ago and struck many as implausible in 1968 when Rainer Weiss of MIT conceived the experiment that became LIGO. The great wonder is they did finally pull it off. They managed to detect those little boogers, said Daniel Kenefick. He's a theoretical physicist at the University of Arkansas and author of the 2007 book, Traveling at the Speed of Thought, Einstein and the Quest for Gravitational Waves. 
that detection ushers in a new era of gravitational wave astronomy that is expected to deliver a better understanding of the formation, population, and galactic role of black holes, super dense balls of mass that curve space-time so steeply that even light cannot escape. When black holes spiral toward each other and merge, they emit a chirp, space-time ripples that grow higher in pitch and amplitude before abruptly ending. The chirps that LIGO can detect happen to fall in the audible range, although they are far too quiet to be heard by the unaided ear. You can recreate the sound by running your finger along a piano's keys. Start from the lowest note on the piano and go to middle C, Weiss said. That's what we hear. Physicists are already surprised by the number and strength of the signals detected so far, which imply that there are more black holes out there than expected. We got lucky, but I was always expecting us to be somewhat lucky, said Kip Thorne. He's the theoretical physicist at Caltech who founded LIGO with Weiss and Ronald Drever, who is also at Caltech. This usually happens when a whole new window's been opened up on the universe. Eavesdropping on gravitational waves could reshape our view of the cosmos in other ways, perhaps uncovering unimagined cosmic happenings. I liken this to the first time we pointed a telescope at the sky, said Jana Levin, a theoretical astrophysicist at Barnard College of Columbia University. People realized there was something to see out there, but didn't foresee the huge, incredible range of possibilities that exist in the universe. Similarly, Levin said, gravitational wave detections might possibly reveal that the universe is full of dark stuff that we simply can't detect in a telescope. The story of the first gravitational wave detection began on a Monday morning in September 2015, and it started with a bang, a signal so loud and clear that Weiss thought, this is crap, it's got to be no good. That first gravitational wave swept across advanced LIGO's detectors, first at Livingston, then at Hanford seven milliseconds later, during a mock run in the early hours of September 14th, two days before data collection was officially scheduled to begin. The detectors were just firing up again after a five-year, $200 million upgrade, which equipped them with new noise-damping mirror suspensions and an active feedback system for canceling out extraneous vibrations in real time. The upgrades gave advanced LIGO a major sensitivity boost over its predecessor, Initial LIGO, which from 2002 to 2010 had detected a good clean zero, as Weiss put it. When the big signal arrived in September, scientists in Europe, where it was morning, frantically emailed their American colleagues. As the rest of the team awoke, the news quickly spread. According to Weiss, practically everyone was skeptical, especially when they saw the signal. It was such a textbook chirp that many suspected the data had been hacked. Mistaken claims in the search for gravitational waves have a long history starting in the late 1960s when Joseph Weber of the University of Maryland thought he observed aluminum bars resonating in response to the waves. Most recently, in 2014, an experiment called BICEP-2 reported the detection of primordial gravitational waves, space-time ripples from the Big Bang that would now be stretched and permanently frozen into the geometry of the universe. The BICEP-2 team went public with great fanfare before their results were peer-reviewed, and then got burned when their signal turned out to have come from space dust. 
When Arizona State University cosmologist Lawrence Krauss got wind of the advanced LIGO detection, the first thought is that it was a blind injection, he said. During initial LIGO, simulated signals had been secretly inserted into the data streams to test the response, unbeknownst to most of the team. When Krauss heard from an inside source that it wasn't a blind injection this time, he could hardly contain his excitement. On September 25, 2015, he tweeted to his 200,000 followers, Rumor of a gravitational wave detection at LIGO detector. Amazing if true. We'll post details if it survives. Then, on January 11, 2016, My earlier rumor about LIGO has been confirmed by independent sources. Stay tuned. Gravitational waves may have been discovered. The team's official stance was to keep quiet about their signal until they were dead sure. Thorne, bound by a vow of secrecy, didn't even tell his wife. I celebrated in private, he said. The team's first step was to go back and analyze in excruciating detail how the signal had propagated through the detector's thousands of different measurement channels and to see whether anything strange had happened at the moment the signal was seen. They found nothing unusual. They also ruled out hackers who would have had to know more than anyone about the experiment's thousands of data streams. Even the team that does the blind injections have not perfected their injections well enough not to leave behind lots of fingerprints, Thorne said, and there were no fingerprints. Another weaker chirp showed up in the weeks that followed. The scientists analyzed these first two signals as even more swept in, and they submitted their paper to physical review letters in January. Their estimate of the statistical significance of the first biggest signal is above 5 sigma, meaning the scientists are 99.999% sure it's real. Einstein's equations of general relativity are so complex that it took 40 years for most physicists to agree that gravitational waves exist and are detectable, even in theory. Einstein first thought that objects cannot shed energy in the form of gravitational radiation, then changed his mind. He showed in a seminal 1918 paper which ones could. Dumbbell-like systems that rotate about two axes at once, such as binary stars and supernovas popping like firecrackers, can make waves in space-time. Still, Einstein and his colleagues continued to waffle. Some physicists argued that even if the waves exist, the world will oscillate with them and they cannot be felt. It wasn't until 1957 that Richard Feynman put that question to rest, with a thought experiment demonstrating that if gravitational waves exist, they are theoretically detectable. But nobody knew how common those dumbbell-like sources might be in our cosmic neighborhood or how strong or weak the resulting waves would be. There was that ultimate question of, will we ever really detect them, Kennefick said. In 1968, Ray Weiss was a young professor at MIT who had been roped into teaching a class on general relativity, a theory that he, as an experimentalist, knew little about when news broke that Joseph Weber had detected gravitational waves. Weber had set up a trio of desk-sized aluminum bars in two different U.S. states, and he reported that gravitational waves had set them all ringing. Weiss's students asked him to explain gravitational waves and weigh in about the news. Looking into it, he was intimidated by the complex mathematics. I couldn't figure out what the hell Weber was doing, how the bar interacted with the gravitational wave. 
He sat for a long time, asking himself, what's the most primitive thing I can think of that will detect gravitational waves? An idea came to him that he calls the conceptual basis of LIGO. Imagine three objects sitting in space-time, say mirrors at the corner of a triangle. Send light from one to the other, Weiss said. Look at the time it takes to go from one mass to another and see if the time has changed. It turns out, he said, you can do that quickly. I gave it to my students as a problem. Virtually the whole class was able to do that calculation. In the next few years, as other researchers tried and failed to replicate the results of Weber's resonance bar experiments, Weiss began plotting a much more precise and ambitious experiment, a gravitational wave interferometer. Laser light would bounce between three mirrors in an L-shaped arrangement forming two beams. The spacing of the peaks and troughs of the light waves would precisely measure the lengths of the two arms, creating what could be thought of as X and Y axes for space-time. When the grid was still, the two light waves would bounce back to the corner and cancel each other out, producing a null signal in a detector. But if a gravitational wave swept across Earth, it would stretch the length of one arm and compress the length of the other and vice versa in an alternating pattern. The off-alignment of the two light beams would create a signal in the detector, revealing a fleeting tremor in space and time. Fellow physicists were skeptical at first, but the experiment soon found a champion in Thorne, whose theory group at Caltech studied black holes and other potential gravitational wave sources and the signals they would produce. Thorne had been inspired by Weber's experiment and similar efforts by Russian physicists. After speaking with Weiss at a conference in 1975, Thorne said, I began to believe that gravitational wave detection would succeed and I wanted Caltech to be involved. He had Caltech hire the Scottish experimentalist Ronald Drever, who had also been clamoring to build a gravitational wave interferometer. Thorne, Drever, and Weiss eventually began working as a team, each taking on a share of the countless problems that had to be solved to develop a feasible experiment. The trio founded LIGO in 1984, and after building prototypes and collaborating with a growing team, banked more than $100 million in NSF funding in the early 1990s. Blueprints were drawn up for a pair of giant L-shaped detectors. A decade later, the detectors went online. In Hanford and Livingston, vacuums run down the center of each detector's four-kilometer arms, keeping the laser, the beam path, and the mirrors as isolated as possible from the planet's constant trembling. Not taking any chances, LIGO scientists monitor their detectors with thousands of instruments during each data run, measuring everything they can, seismic activity, atmospheric pressure, lightning, the arrival of cosmic rays, vibrations of the equipment, sounds near the laser beam, and so on. They then cleanse their data of these various sources of background noise. Perhaps most importantly, having two detectors allows them to cross-check their data, looking for coincident signals. Inside the vacuum, even with isolated and stabilized lasers and mirrors, strange signals happen all the time, said Marco Cavaglia, assistant spokesperson for the LIGO collaboration. The scientists must trace these koi fish, ghosts, fringy sea monsters, and other rogue vibrational patterns back to their sources so the culprits can be removed. One tough case occurred during the testing phase, said Jessica MacGyver, a postdoctoral researcher and one of the team's foremost glitch detectives. It was a string of periodic, single-frequency artifacts that appeared every so often in the data. When she and her colleagues converted the mirror vibrations into an audio file, you could clearly hear the ring-ring-ring of a telephone, MacGyver said. 
It turned out to be telemarketers calling the phone inside the laser enclosure. The sensitivity of advanced LIGO's detectors will continue to improve over the next couple of years, and a third interferometer called Advanced Virgo will come online in Italy. One question the data might help answer is how black holes form. Are they products of implosions of the earliest massive stars? Or do they originate from collisions inside tight clusters of stars? Those are just two ideas. I bet there will be several more before the dust settles, Weiss said. As LIGO tallies new statistics in future runs, scientists will be listening for whispers of these black hole origin stories. Judging by its shape and size, that first loudest chirp originated about 1.3 billion light-years away from the location where two black holes, each of roughly 30 solar masses, finally merged after slow dancing under mutual gravitational attraction for eons. The black holes spiraled toward each other faster and faster as the end drew near, like water in a drain, shedding three suns' worth of energy to gravitational waves in roughly the blink of an eye. The merger is the most energetic event ever detected. It's as though we had never seen the ocean in a storm, Thorin said. He has been waiting for a storm in space-time ever since the 1960s. The feeling he experienced when the waves finally rolled in wasn't excitement, he said, but something else. Profound satisfaction. Second, the buzzball fix for a black hole paradox by Jennifer Ouellette. In the late 18th century, the scientist John Mitchell pondered what would happen if a star were so massive and its gravity so strong that its escape velocity would be equivalent to the speed of light. He concluded that any emitted light would be redirected inward, rendering the star invisible. He called these hypothetical objects dark stars. Mitchell's 1784 treatise languished in quiet obscurity until it resurfaced in the 1970s. By then, theoretical physicists were well acquainted with black holes. The dark star idea translated into Albert Einstein's theory of gravity. Black holes have a boundary called an event horizon that represents the point of no return, as well as a singularity, a point of infinite density within. Yet Einstein's description of the world is inconsistent with quantum mechanics, driving physicists to seek a complete theory of quantum gravity to reconcile the two. String theory is a leading contender, presenting yet another potential picture. Black holes may be reimagined as fuzzballs, with no singularity and no event horizon. Rather, the entire region within what was envisioned as the event horizon is a tangled ball of strings, those fundamental units of energy that string theory says can vibrate in various complicated ways to give rise to space-time and all the forces and particles therein. Instead of an event horizon, a fuzzball has a fuzzy surface, more akin to that of a star or a planet. Ohio State University's string theorist Samir Mathur believes fuzzballs are the true quantum description of a black hole and has become a vocal champion of his own self-described fuzzball conjecture, expanding on the concept. His version of fuzzballs provides potential mechanisms to resolve the naughty problem of reconciling the classical and quantum descriptions of a black hole, and ultimately, the rest of our universe. 
But to make it work, physicists will have to abandon long-held notions of singularities and event horizons, a sacrifice many are unwilling to make. Mothor's work grew out of attempts to calculate the quantum properties of a black hole, as well as an ongoing struggle to resolve a paradox about what happens to information that falls into one. Both issues arise from Stephen Hawking's insistence in the 1970s that black holes are not truly black. Due to quirks of quantum mechanics, they radiate a small amount of heat, called Hawking radiation, and thus have a temperature. If black holes have temperature, they must have entropy, often described as a measure of how much disorder is present in a given system. Every physical object has entropy, and entropy must always increase, per the second law of thermodynamics. Yet the smooth, featureless picture of a black hole described by general relativity doesn't account for its entropy which is a key feature of its quantum mechanical description. An object's entropy is described by microstates, the number of ways atoms can be rearranged to achieve the same macroscale object. A scrambled egg has more entropy than an unbroken egg because the scrambled egg's atoms can be moved around in a seemingly infinite number of ways. By contrast, the distinct yolk and white in an unbroken egg limits the possibilities for atomic-level rearrangement. Black holes are not exempted from the laws of thermodynamics. Entropy comes from counting the possible states of atoms, explained Joseph Polchinski, a physicist at UC Santa Barbara. So black holes should have some kind of atomic structure with countable states. The problem is that any one black hole has far more possible states than thousands of scrambled eggs. The calculation required to measure entropy on that scale is truly daunting. It is possible to infer the number of states, however, using a formula devised by Jacob Bekenstein in 1972 that showed the entropy of a black hole to be proportional to the size of the event horizon around it. By definition, we can't see inside a black hole to count its possible states, but within the context of string theory, a black hole's atomic structure comes in the form of strings and brains that, like atoms, can also be arranged in many different ways. We can imagine how strings might be arranged within a black hole such that the entropy would equal that found by Bekenstein's formula. Physicists must employ a variety of tunable toy models to perform those calculations. There's a knob you can turn in string theory where the black hole is no longer black, and you can see strings and brains inside, said Polchinski. These gravity-free models make it possible to count the microstates. But once the gravity is turned back on, everything goes black again. Mothor's fuzzball conjecture, by contrast, allows him to calculate the number of microstates in models that don't exclude gravity. In the view of University of Southern California string theorist Nick Warner, a fuzzball is less like a black hole than it is like a neutron star, an extra-dense state of matter that does not have a singularity or event horizon. Neutron stars owe their existence to the repulsive force produced when matter is squished together so tightly that the individual electrons are forced to occupy the same quantum state, something expressly forbidden in quantum mechanics. String theory has a similar mechanism, said Warner, whereby massless fields provide the outward pressure instead of squashed electrons. Strings that fall onto the surface of a fuzzball combine to form larger, more complex strings much as it is easier to pluck a long guitar string than a short one because of the inherent tension, 
When strings join together to form longer strands, it is easier for them to expand to a wider diameter. They puff up, providing sufficient outward pressure to prevent a singularity. They prevent the formation of a black hole by a phase transition to a new state of matter, said Warner. By calculating the number of microstates in simple fuzzball models, it is possible to match the entropy as calculated by Bekenstein, a promising first step. Even if Mothor is correct and his fuzzball conjecture can account for the missing entropy, this doesn't resolve the naughtier problem of the infamous black hole information paradox. Mothor's fuzzball conjecture owes its evolution to his long-standing fascination with this paradox, another consequence of Hawking radiation. Hawking noted that according to quantum mechanics, even the vacuum of empty space is not truly empty. It pulses with energy from quantum fields, producing entangled pairs of virtual particles. Matter, or antimatter, or Alice and Bob, as they are commonly called in thought experiments. Virtual particle pairs are constantly popping into existence and then annihilating. But if such a virtual particle pair came into existence at the event horizon of a black hole, one half of the pair, Alice, could fall in before annihilation, leaving the other, Bob, outside. It would appear as if the black hole were emitting radiation. As the Bob particles fly away, the overall mass of the black hole decreases. Given enough time, it will wink out of existence. If this were to happen, the information formerly contained in the material that fell into the black hole would appear to vanish as well, violating the fundamental law of quantum mechanics that information must be conserved. Thus, the laws of gravity predict a situation that seems to violate the laws of quantum mechanics. Physicists have fought over the paradox for 40 years. It really laid down a gauntlet, Polchinski said of Hawking's original premise. Quantum mechanics is modified. Find my mistake. And nobody found his mistake. Mothor boils the paradox down to two key elements. The first is general relativity's insistence that the area of the event horizon is a vacuum, devoid of structure. Or as John Wheeler once put it, black holes have no hair. There are very good reasons to think so. Any dust, gas, or elementary particle placed at the horizon should fall into the black hole, leaving the same vacuum state as before. But this gives rise to the second element of the paradox. If there is a vacuum at the horizon, then there must be Hawking radiation, and a black hole will evaporate over time. The minute you make a horizon, you've got the Hawking information problem, said Warner, that is why Mothor argues that black holes must have hair after all. There must be structure at the horizon because it provides a means of preserving information that falls into a black hole. Fuzzballs provide that structure. They aren't empty pits like traditional black holes. Rather, they are packed full of strings. They have a surface just like any other star or planet. And just like stars or planets, they emit heat in the form of radiation. When Mothor calculated the energy spectrum of the radiation emitted from a simple fuzzball, he found it exactly matched the prediction for Hawking radiation. In the fuzzball conjecture, then, the information paradox is an illusion. Information cannot be lost beyond the event horizon because there is no event horizon. 
And while black holes are all alike, buzzballs in Mothor's thinking would be unique, making it possible, in theory at least, for physicists to trace a fuzzball back to the initial conditions that created it. As the fuzzball evaporates, the information inside it gets encoded in the Hawking radiation and carried away. Mother's insistence that there must be structure at the horizon did not meet with immediate acceptance. Three years later, however, Polchinski and three co-authors published a related thought experiment. The authors identified three central concepts in physics that could not all simultaneously be true around the event horizon of a black hole. One must be abandoned to resolve this so-called firewall paradox. First, according to general relativity, Alice should notice nothing unusual as she crosses the event horizon of a black hole. Second, quantum mechanics demands that information must not be lost. Finally, the principle of locality requires that Alice may only be directly influenced by her immediate surroundings. Polchinski and his co-authors argued that in order to preserve both information and locality, the no-drama condition must be sacrificed. At the event horizon, there should be a ring of fire, the firewall. The firewall paradox called attention to the possibility of structure at the event horizon, an irony not lost on string theorists like Warner. We've been screaming that for about 10 years now, he said. He insists that the central firewall argument is fundamentally Mothor's argument, with a few extra flourishes. A firewall is essentially a hot fuzzball. We're not giving up on equivalence. We're saying there is no singularity and no horizon. It just caps off into some fuzz, he said. The firewall is simply the fact that this stuff can be hot. I'm curious to see where the firewall story goes, because my view is it's hot fuzzballs, and that's the end of it. Polchinski freely admits that he and his co-authors didn't initially recognize just how much their paper built on Mothor's prior work. It has since been revised with proper credit given. But Polchinski said that the firewall paper makes the paradox more severe, crystallizing the issue in the most dramatic way. General relativity holds that Alice will notice nothing unusual as she crosses the event horizon of a black hole. Polchinski and his co-authors posit that she will burn up in a wall of fire as soon as she reaches it. So what happens if she falls into a fuzzball? Nobody knows for sure, but fuzzballs may not be as cuddly as they sound. Don Marof is a physicist at UC Santa Barbara and one of the firewall paper's co-authors. He mused that Alice might be torn apart at the horizon or simply hit the fuzzball surface with a thud. Or perhaps Alice would notice nothing amiss. In a paper posted to archive.org in June 2015, Mothor claims that an astronaut could be captured by a black hole and she simply would not be able to tell, thanks to what he calls fuzzball complementarity. In Mothor's scenario, black holes behave a bit like copy machines. Alice, who's made up of strings, hits the surface of the black hole. Her component strings combine with others to form longer strings that retain the characteristics of the original strings. An approximate copy of Alice's strings gets made. Moreover, the impact when she hits causes the fuzzy surface to vibrate. Mothor calculated the frequency spectrum of those vibrations and found that they were mathematically identical to what one would expect to see if Alice fell past the horizon of a black hole without noticing. 
Mothor likens it to how a grand piano and an electronic keyboard play the same notes despite their very different underlying mechanisms for producing sound. The same set of phenomena are described by two apparently different things, said Warner. So crashing into a fuzzball might not be a whole hell of a lot different from just falling into a black hole. Many physicists remain skeptical of the fuzzball concept. Warner initially counted himself among them. I did the good Galilean thing and got involved in the problem to kill it, he admitted. Instead, he became a convert. He favors Mothor's approach in part because it makes use of what physicists have learned from 30 years of string theory, rather than trying clumsily to patch together general relativity and quantum mechanics. We've been trying to do that for 40 years, he said. It doesn't work. But he acknowledges that the picture is incomplete. Fuzzballs match expected predictions in the context of toy models of highly idolized types of black holes with zero temperature. That means there is no Hawking radiation, and the black holes don't evaporate, which is a critical component of retrieving information. Such models provide a mechanism for storing information by encoding the data in the fuzzball structure. But the information paradox is both a storage and a recycling problem, and we don't have the recycling mechanism, said Warner. The next step will be to extend the concept to more realistic models that match the black holes we observe indirectly in our universe. It's not hopeless, it's just daunting. Buzzballs also require extra dimensions and rest on the assumption that string theory is the correct theory of quantum gravity, which may or may not be the case. Mothor still insists his fuzzball conjecture completes the information puzzle at least in string theory, and by extension, the firewall paradox. Polchinski remains staunchly agnostic. All bets are off. Everything is open for discussion. As for Maroth, he stands by the firewall, while conceding that it is not the only means of resolving the puzzle. If Samir says he has a solution to the paradox, he is linguistically correct. He's also in good company, said Maroth. There are lots of people with resolutions to the paradox. Whether it's the way physics actually works in our universe remains to be seen. You're listening to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast with music by Poddington Bear. I'm Cynthia Banu. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.